Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. This is a story featuring the supermodel Giselle, Ivanka Trump, some fancy houses, and a lot of math. But let's start with a man who you may never have heard of, but whose wealth will blow you away. Well, when David Tepper moved to Florida in 2015, New Jersey's budget director called it a new forecast risk because of the amount of taxes that that one taxpayer paid. That's CNBC reporting on one of the richest people in the world, a hedge fund manager named David Tepper. Some years, Tepper earns north of a billion dollars. And we're talking about a paycheck in one year. Now, when he moved to Florida, Tepper became a national symbol for tax opponents as proof that the rich will move if you tax them too much. Now, that despite the fact that Tepper said back then that he moved to Florida to be closer to his mother and sister, not to lower his nine-figure state tax bill. Now, he did not... You could be saving if you're one of these people... 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 million dollars a year in state and local income. I know, I mean, it's so unfathomable how nuts our wealth and income inequality has gotten, but that's the kind of savings. Richard Florida is a university professor at the University of Toronto's School of Cities and the co founder and editor at large of City Lab. And he says the panic that we saw from New Jersey when David Tepper left for Florida a few years ago, it's spreading. And it could spell disaster for states with high taxes like California, New York, New Jersey, and serve as an unexpected boon for lower tax states like Florida and Texas. And that's the threat. I'm going to take okay. my 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 million in state and local income tax, and I'm going to tell my friends to come with me. The threat, Florida argues, is getting pretty explicit. And it comes at the worst possible moment when state and local officials face waves of evictions, business closures, and ballooning need. Because the relocation of just a few people, people like Tepper, who we'll actually get back to a little later, that could be the difference between cities being able to help their most vulnerable citizens and not being able to help them. And some of the estimates suggest that, you know, if, if, if say, 5% of these folks would leave the greater New York area, it would cost New York upwards of a, a billion dollars a year in lost revenue. Well, that's, that's non-trivial. And the way, unfortunately, our system of municipal taxation works is that these high earners pay a lot of tax. Now, I don't like this. And I think what it shows, in addition to parts of the 1% giving the proverbial finger to cities, which is kind of nasty business where they made all their money, I think it shows that this system of taxation that we created, which was kind of premised upon a simple calculation that you would live close to where you worked or you would live close to where your business is, that what remote work does is break that. It busts it apart. Why is this popping up as a problem now? A problem, by the way, that Richard Florida thinks not nearly enough folks are talking about? Well, for one thing, of course, this is an outgrowth of work from home. But in some ways... It was set in motion not by a virus, but by a president. Uh, Donald Trump, I think, you know, a lifelong New Yorker who kind of hates the city because the city doesn't like him very much. uh, You know, he he eliminated the ability of one percenters or all of us, but the population, but one percenters were the ones who take advantage of this to if they lived in New York or San Francisco, deduct. So, folks, they could deduct their state. You and I don't do this, but they could deduct their state and local income taxes, their state and local taxes From there, they could itemize that and deduct that from their federal income tax so they could get a credit. Now, tax policy is maybe not the most thrilling topic, 
but the ability to deduct local taxes in high-tax states was a really big deal. Getting rid of it was bad for wealthy people in blue states. Some Democrats were all for this because why should rich people get a break on their taxes? Other Democrats were in freakout mode because it felt like the president was trying to punish rich people in blue states and maybe drive them away. And the scary thing for blue states is that the 1% seem to be moving to places like Miami and Texas in noticeable numbers. Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, has announced that they will relocate their headquarters to the Austin area. And plenty of real estate and hedge fund folks are buying homes in Miami. Among the 1%, there's a lot of herd mentality. There's a, a famous professor, late professor at Harvard, Raymond Vernon, who studied corporate location amongst many other things. And he once told me when I met him, among business corporations in the 1%, once one person moves, wh whether that's General Motors or IBM or Oracle or a rich person, they all follow one another. So let's, let's look huh. at this. In Austin, we've seen a lot of techies. We saw Elon Musk uh, relocate his Cybertruck factory. Now that's not in Austin proper. We need to be careful. That's outside of Austin. Austin is a pretty left-leaning progressive destination. It's in an area surrounding Austin. We've seen Elon Musk himself say he's moving to Texas. We've seen Larry yes. Ellison uh, say he's going, we, we hear. But, you know, look, speaking of Austin, I've been studying high-tech uh, clusters, high-tech innovation centers, since the mid-1980s, Austin was already going to Silicon Valley and trying to attract companies from Silicon Valley in the late 80s. So this is no overnight sensation. Austin okay. has been, and when I wrote Rise of the Creative Class 20 years ago, my two focal cities were Austin and Pittsburgh because all the young kids studying software engineering and computer engineering and electrical engineering wanted to go to Austin back in the late 1990s. So now the problem for, for I think, the business elites is Austin is a very progressive city. You know, if you're trying to escape left-leaning progressive politics, Austin has always been, a, it's not like other parts of Texas. It's a very progressive city, so who knows what'll happen. Miami's a different story. We have seen venture capitalists move to Miami along with hedge funders. We have seen not only New Yorkers now, but Miami, look at it. If you take South Florida, the, the first person who said they're coming here was Donald Trump himself, right? I'm gonna move back to Mar-a-Lago. His, his daughter, Ivanka, uh, and Jared Kushner have bought a property on Indian Creek, a very exclusive island, very uber-exclusive island outside of Miami Beach, a gated community. Tom Brady and Giselle have bought a property on that same island. Kushner's mm -hmm. brother and Carly Kloss, the model. So this is like not only the 1%, this is like the celebrity 1%. Right, right. Um, and I think those folks are attracted to the glamour and glitz of Miami and the fact that it's a low-tax destination and that kind of anything goes, if you will. It, it's unclear right now, to be quite honest. Um, the mayor of Miami is a very interesting guy, Francis Suarez, terrific young Republican, Latino-Hispanic, very dynamic, very charismatic, probably saw him on CNN when he got COVID early on. Uh, yes, I did, actually. Uh, very yes. dynamic guy. I've gotten to know him a little bit. He's, he's a, re a really interesting person and watch his political career. But he's become kind of made it his personal mission to recruit high-tech venture capitalists to Miami. So, look, uh, Miami is not Austin. It's not Silicon Valley. But it does have, you know, this – the Knight Foundation for years has been building an innovation complex in the Wynwood area of Miami. And there is a little hub of technology. So look, I, I, I don't think it's Seattle. It's not Austin, but it's growing. And, the, the, you know, I, I think what worries me, I'm not worried about New York at all. I think New York 
even if you go back to the 70s, you know, New York still had rich people. It still had financial headquarters. It had crime. But it, it but what worries me is could San Francisco look more like Pittsburgh or Detroit? If you look at what happened to cities, Pittsburgh once had a vibrant innovation center of steel and electronics and even aerospace and resources and chemicals. I lived there for 20 years. They did research on it. Detroit was probably the most innovative place of its day in the early 20th century with the auto industry and related. They declined pretty dramatically. And, and the reason they declined, you know, I'm an urban geographer, that people will say the combination of high labor costs and labor flexibility or labor inflexibility, what they called institutional rigidities, encouraged capital flight or put in motion, maybe not encouraged, put in motion capital flight to the Sunbelt, to the suburbs and offshore. If you're looking at today's geography, you could say that San Francisco has analogous kinds of rigidities, lots of regulation, not building enough housing, high labor costs, inflexibility. And would you expect capital flight to places like Austin or Denver or even Miami? Maybe. Do I think San Francisco will go the way of Detroit or Pittsburgh? Probably not. But does San Francisco have deep challenges now that it never experienced before? Probably yes. If you were hearing this conversation and you were like the mayor of New York, the governor of New York, the mayor of San Francisco, the governor of California, would you be worried? Would you think, ah, it's a few people. This is, who cares? I mean, this is this is minor stuff. Well, I'm a lifelong, I'm from Newark and I'm kind of a lifelong New Yorker and I have an appointment at NYU. So I know New York better. The financial and real estate and technology community in New York is freaked out. There's no other way to say it. It's freaked out. They are freaked out about people leaving. They are freaked out about the impact on the budget. They are freaked out about the chaos in the mayor's race. I mean, right now, what do you have, 25 candidates in running for mayor of New York? So there is a generalized freak out. But that's a good thing. I think one thing about New York is the civic elite, like them or not, and depending on which side of the aisle, will organize themselves the way they did after the 1970s to kind of save the city. And I think this time around, the civic elite realizes that has to be inclusive. It can't just be making New York an, a wonderful home for the one percent, that that there's a real there's a new coalition for inclusive growth in New York, that there's a sense that New York has to take the issues of economic inequality that got Bill de Blasio elected, uh, that are ricocheting through its council and its politics very seriously. San Francisco, I know less about. And my guess is there probably isn't as much concern as there is in New York. My view of this is that New York is big and it's resilient and it has lots of neighborhoods and it can remake itself. It's shown itself to, um, we can talk more about how. San Francisco's tougher. It's smaller. It's more insular. There's the, the battle is more pitched between left and right, business and progressives. You could see San Francisco going one of two ways. It could get its act together and kind of restore itself around inclusive growth, or it could all go south and fall apart. Now, I don't think it will fall apart, but I think it's going to lose tech share. And, and what's interesting, to be honest, I mean, if you look at the data, the, the, there's an interesting shift already happened in the Bay Area. Most of venture capital finance high technology used to be in Silicon Valley when I studied this in the 80s and 90s. Silicon Valley has lost its allure a long time ago. Um, Silicon Valley now ranks about fourth or fifth in the United States in terms of its venture capital finance startups. San Francisco okay. is number one. This is one. how much money is poured into these little companies that are starting out. Yeah, okay. sorry, 100%. And, and the companies that are kind of the cutting edge of new technology. 
Okay. Silicon Valley got filled up with headquarters of Google, Facebook, Apple, Oracle, big established companies. And that's why those young kids would take the bus because they didn't want to live there. They wanted to live, the young techies on which those industries depend, wanted to live in the dynamic urban environment of San Francisco. Now, now the Bay Area share, even though Silicon Valley's gone down, San Francisco's up, has hovered around 50% of all U.S. startup investment. Uh, that could decline. Is it going to decline to less than 30? Doubtful. Is San Francisco still going to be the number one center? Yeah. But one thing we did find, I did an analysis with a fellow named Ian Hathaway, who's a real expert in this. Um, what we did find is that in terms of technology financed innovation, financed by venture capitalists, the U.S. has lost share big time. So we didn't find so much that Austin or Denver or any other place had caught up to San Francisco, so much that San Francisco was losing share to Shanghai, Beijing, London, Stockholm, Amsterdam, Toronto. So the other part of this equation is, given the immigration restrictions, yeah. does a lot of what used to happen in San Francisco or New York simply shift offshore? And I think that's right. the second worry of this, that, that people just go to heck with the United States, we'll stay home and do this stuff. Right. Now, let's go back to this scenario in which maybe you're a mayor or you're a governor. And, and let's say it is a, a, a kind of high tax state in New York or California. Um, you've got cities and states stuck in a terrible situation, right? Lots of businesses have closed down. OK, well, that's your tax base. Um, uh, it may be that property values have declined somewhat. Some of the rich are leaving, you're saying. So they're facing, you know, less tax revenue. Well, what can they do? They, they can raise taxes to meet their needs, which they, of which they clearly have a lot. Um, but then businesses might move. People might move. Um, they could not raise taxes and not meet their needs. This sounds like a very, very bad situation. Let's call it for what it is, a race to the bottom. That's what we've got going on, a race to the bottom. And I think business elites have figured out that the pandemic is a perfect excuse to squeeze these cities. If, if you didn't like what was happening in San Francisco and New York and you're a business person developing real estate, you want to develop bigger and taller, you have a tech company, you want to expand and they're constantly blocking you, they're constantly demanding you pay a head tax, they're constantly throwing roadblocks, you're just saying, no, I'm going to squeeze these people. And I think what we're seeing now is not just tax avoidance, I think it's the threat of capital flight. We've seen this movie before. It happened in Pittsburgh 150 years ago. It happened in Detroit a century ago. Hmm. And I think, you know, on the other hand, no blaming the mayors and governors of Miami and Florida, who happen to be some of them Republican. No blaming the mayors and governors of Austin, Democrat mayor, Republican governor, for going after this. This is the way the game is played. And they're not even handing out um, these gross incentives like they did to Amazon HQ2. They're just putting up their hands and saying, come here, we'll let you do business. So look, this is something that one would think the federal government has got to step in. The Biden, okay. you know, look, look, first, first things first, what do we need from Biden and Harris? We need a bailout. And remember, in the new package that was passed before the holidays, if folks remember, there was a stimulus and aid to small business and to people and an eviction moratorium continued, not a penny in state and local aid. So without state and local aid, we're going to have bankruptcy. We're going to have austerity. We're going to have service cutbacks. We're going to have people thrown out of their homes. It's going to be horrific. Job one is a is a reasonable support package to state and local government to not forever to get through this terrible pandemic. The second thing is I think we need some real thought put into how do we end this race to the bottom? Because once this dynamic is set in motion, as it has been set in motion, 
we've got a real sticky wicket because it, it's not just going to affect the blue expensive states. It's going to start to bite everybody. It's going to cause a race to the bottom for everybody. Let's take a quick break here. I'm going to be back with Richard Florida. He's a university professor at the University of Toronto's School of Cities, and he's the editor-at-large of the website City Lab. We're going to have more of his work about the flight of the richest Americans. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Some people got to have it. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've all heard a lot about working from home over the past several months. You might be doing it, or your neighbor, or your brother-in-law. But then there's that other sort of working from home, one that you and the folks you know probably have not experienced. You get on your jet when you need to get on your jet. You go monitor your business and you get the hell out of there. That's Richard Florida, an urban geographer who works at NYU and the University of Toronto. And he's talking about a phenomenon that's so small, it's pretty much happening under the radar. But it's such a big deal, it may change your life. The people who are most likely to move to low-tax states are the uber-wealthy. Because it's not a move. It's a fictitious move. It's a move on paper. It just means being out of your home, your business's home jurisdiction, being out of New York or San Francisco 184 days a year. What's happening, Florida says, is that During the pandemic, some of the richest people in the country have moved away from places like San Francisco, where you pay very high taxes, to places like Miami with very low taxes. Now, for an individual rich person, and we're talking about people with hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in wealth, this can add up to major savings, 10, 20, even $100 million a year. For a city trying to help people living through a pandemic who are increasingly desperate, this can add up to disaster. Look, this country is polarized. We just went through an election. We saw it again. And this is a polarization I've never seen in my lifetime. This makes the 60s look, you know, it's completely different. If our business class or capitalist class doesn't wake up, yeah, the pitchforks. It doesn't surprise me. He argues that though this is not a big topic of discussion, it better be high on the Biden-Harris agenda. They're going to have to say to this group of, of business elites, the capitalist class, guys and gals, you've got to be part of this country as a whole. You can't just be thinking of your own advantage. And if you are, we're going to set in motion some nasty business. We're going to hike the income tax. We're going to set in motion a wealth tax. We're going to make your life. So so there is a countermeasure to this called a federal government. And for the first time in four years, we have a federal government that can act. During the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt, who came from the elite himself, was viewed by some wealthy Americans as a traitor to his class. He was a politician who wanted to tax the rich rather than letting them keep as much as they could. Richard Florida, whose father served in the war that FDR guided the country through, says he believes, like his father did, that there's an opportunity to turn this around. But much as during World War II, 
it's going to take real leadership. My father always said, you know, a guy who lived through the Depression, almost died of a childhood disease, had scarlet fever, had his last rites read to him as a boy, left school at age 13 to help support his family, went and signed up and enlisted that December day when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, stormed the beaches at Normandy. My dad always said, Richard, never underestimate the ability of the United States to turn itself around. Florida's father ultimately worked in an eyeglass factory to put his kids through college. And you have to believe, Florida says, sometimes leaders come along at just the right moment. Roosevelt, of course, had to deal with major inequities. He had to wrangle the elite. Demands that might sound familiar. I think Biden's going to have to do the same thing. He's going to have to organize labor, business, academia, He's going to have to organize this country to say, we got to fix this and we can't, we can't afford a race to the bottom. And, and not only because it's, the race to the bottom is bad, it is bad. It's horrible because it's going to pull this country apart. It's going to pull this country apart in ways that we don't want. We want to pull. And if you think about the campaign, the whole orientation of the campaign, it was about unifying the country. What's interesting when you look at the phenomenon of the richest Americans moving away from blue states is that those doing pretty well, not the richest, are mostly not leaving the New Yorks and the San Franciscos and the Chicagos and the Philadelphias, at least not yet. There'll be an oracle that moves to Austin. There'll be a real estate fund that moves some people to Miami. But at the end of the day, New York and San Francisco, we did the analysis of headquarters location. I I did this with a fellow named Patrick Adler who works with me. The two biggest headquarters locations in the United States by far are New York, which has been that way for over a century, and San Francisco, which eclipsed uh, Chicago over the past two decades. Those, as destinations for work, for industry, they're going to maintain themselves for quite a while, although San Francisco okay. has a tougher sled. It's the ability of the 1% to kind of, I'm making air quotes, folks, change their location, change their location of residence. That's the issue there. And blow a hole in the budget. Like you were talking about the guy from New Jersey who moved and one guy caused a $100 million and I think know, hole saying, in the budget. You know, look, the channels of communication are open. I think they're saying to the governor and the mayor, fix this. Fix right, this. Right. Get, make this place more friendly to me and I'll move back. But if you're going to continue this behavior, you know, I, screw you. And I really think this is not just about taxes. This is a sense of of, of trying to encourage in a very nasty way these places to get get back on board. And what's so tragic about this is if you look at the, you know, the trend in inequality in the United States has been horrendous for the past 20 yeah. years. Right. Of course, the most unequal places in the United States are our biggest coastal cities. I wrote a whole book about this called The Nerve and Crisis. Our most innovative, progressive, Democrat blue cities are the most unequal because that's what's happened. They've accumulated lots of wealth and had these core industries. Um, and now the pandemic has accelerated this, right? It, it has fallen ha- most harshly on frontline workers. It's fall- fallen most harshly on Hispanic and Latino and African-Americans, on, their, on them as individuals and their communities. And so what coming out, you know, look, what was the most unequal decade in American history up to now? The 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. What did the Roaring Twenties follow? The Spanish mm-hmm. flu. I mean, just look at the historical record. So, so what really terrifies me is come out of this pandemic. We're not going to see all boats rise. What we're seeing now, we're already seeing it, is a very few boats rise a lot. And then the professional and knowledge workers, the, the uh, advantage third rise a bit. And the rest of the 60 percent, 66, two thirds of Americans sink like a stone. 
You know, we last talked um, in March, really, as things were, you know, in lockdown, kind of, it was so early now we know, kind of in the experience of the pandemic. And I wonder, I think you were very convinced then that this was not the end of cities. But as you say, there's been this dynamic where the wealthiest people, not and not the, I don't mean the very, very, very wealthiest people, but like the wealthiest chunk, 20, 30 percent of people, like they haven't been going out. They haven't been going to shops. They haven't been doing the kinds of things that kept a lot of people employed. Um, what do you see now that's happening in cities? I wonder how your view has changed since March. 100 percent cities will survive. Cities have been through far worse. Um, look at Berlin. Take the example of Berlin, a Nazi occupation, uh, carpet bombing. Look at London, many infectious disease epidemics, blitzkrieg. Berlin occupied and partitioned. And still Berlin is one of the biggest cities in, in Europe, if not the world, the most dynamic yeah. cities. Look at London. You know, nothing you can do to London will squelch it. New York has suffered great tragedies and, and come back. They will be very different. And I think uh, I, I worry uh, I do think smaller cities like San Francisco and even smaller cities could be m- more damaged than the big. I think the big, big cities, the ones we typically worry a lot about, like New York or London, are the ones that will come back the strongest ultimately. But but here's what I think will change. I think that remote work is a big game changer, and that's what we've been talking about. And I think that remote work really goes after the office district of cities. If you look at what – if you really – if I really think about what's going to change in cities, wonderful residential neighborhoods will maintain wonderful residential neighborhoods. They're already bouncing back. Brooklyn Heights, Greenwich Village, Soho, Tribeca. They'll get younger. They'll have fewer families. They'll be more affordable. They'll be more dynamic. Those midtown skyscraper districts, you know, those office tower districts where you got professional and knowledge workers and office functionaries going on trains and buses and subways and cars and flooding into downtowns of New York or Toronto or Boston. I think those days are done. Now, will there be offices? Yes. But we're looking at probably remote workers increasing from 5 to 20 or 30 percent of the workforce. That's a big change. We're looking at maybe a a reduction of 20 to 30 percent in the demand for office. And I think office will spread. One, it's going to spread into your house. But two, there's going to be a spreading of offices and co-working space closer to where people live because people aren't going to want to endure those commutes. So there'll be office hubs and suburbs and outlying areas and places like my boyhood hometown of Newark or Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm using New York references or places outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, these old suburban areas will be retrofitted with office and co-working spaces. But I think those central business, the way I look at this, the only analog I have is if you look at what happened in the 1970s to cities that was called deindustrialization. When those old factory buildings, well, maybe in Boston, that started in the 50s and 60s. And in other cities, it started in the 60s and 70s. Those old fa- cities used to be industrial centers, and then at some point they weren't. Right. And, and, and that caused a big uh, transformation and a big resetting. This isn't as bad. The, the end of the central business, you know, if Jane Jacobs were alive, she wrote a book called The Death and Life of the Great American City. I think we could look at the death and life of the central business district, the office tower district. I think that has to be remade into much more of a live-work area. And I think the best example we have of it in America is what happened to the financial district in New York after 9-11, where that was really rebuilt much more as a live-work area than just a work-work-work area. I think what's happened to the financial district, though, is going to be like on steroids. 
we're going to have to really think about re, re, resetting and remaking those towers as affordable housing, as mixed use, much more dynamic neighborhoods. And, and that could be a good, I don't think this is a bad thing. It's going to be painful uh, for city budgets. But the idea of spreading out work, making less of it happen in one area, reducing commutes, spreading it out to the suburbs, creating employment hubs in the suburbs, making our city centers more uh, 24 by seven neighborhoods and more affordable. In the long run, that's a better way of life than what we have. So then, you know, when you think about this issue of the very rich leaving, is this to you a side issue? Is this something that changes the future of city? Do these people have real power to change the future of cities, the future of companies? Just give me a sense of like how this factors into the overall vision. I think without real federal intervention, without a set of federal standards, without a federal government that works with states and cities to figure this out, yeah, they have real power. There may be some who disagree with me, but yeah, they have real power. They have real power to scare the bejesus out of governors and mayors and chambers of commerce and to put real pressure on cities and to cause, they are causing this race to the bottom. There's no doubt in my mind they're causing this race to the bottom. So yeah, they have, they have real power, real power, you know, non-trivial power. And it's going to take, you can't do this just by, unless, you know, and I tried this with the Amazon HQ2, you know, I reached out to all my friends who are mayors, progressive mayors. And I said, why don't you people, uh, men and women, create a pact, a compact that says we're not going to raid each other. We're not going to try to lure Amazon with it. And they, no one would agree to it. Every, it was a race to the bottom. So mm-hmm. they're going to be continue to be a race to the bottom. Everyone's going to have their particular sense of advantage. And, you know, if you're the mayor of a, a red state city that's seeing this investment, you're going to go for it. So you're going to need a referee. And that referee is going to have to be the federal government. And to be honest, and I'm not an expert on this, so we need to have this conversation in this country. The system of revenue that we have that is premised upon the co-location of your work and your body, remote work tears that apart. Mm-hmm. That, that's the, and, and so then you need a system of revenue that says we're going we're gonna to collect revenue based on your wealth and your income. And we're going to have to do that in a rational way. It's not going to be able that you're just going to be able to move a state border and, 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 and reduce your tax burden by 15%. That's a sticky wicket. That is a real sticky wicket because it gets into state rights. It gets into how states compete. But look, in the absence of that, you're going to have this race to the bottom. And I think this is one of the big issues. No one's talking. I shouldn't say no one. It's not the issue that you hear in the national conversation about what the Biden-Harris administration has to do. But if you ask me, and and by the way, how did the Biden-Harris administration get elected? On the backs of big cities and big coastal metropolitan areas. That's Mm -hmm. what got them elected. And, and those big cities and red states. Look, I mean, this is political, too. I mean, the Biden-Harris administration has got to figure out it, it can't let this continue. Um, and I think this is an area that we're just going to hear more and more about until we figure out a way to deal with it. I think but the revenue, you know, I just want to say this. The yeah. revenue system we have that we inherited that's based on where you live no longer works when you can work remotely. Well, let me just uh, you hinted at this, but do you think there's going to be like hardball tactics where basically people are like, I want, you know, I want to build this building or I want I don't want you to give me such a hard time with environmental regulation or whatever, with the implicit threat being you do this big city or 
I'm leaving. I think it's already happening. I think Jeff okay. Bezos said that to the Seattle City Council and the mayor. I think we've seen that in San Francisco, and I think we see it with New York real estate developers. It may not be quite that blatant, uh, but it's close to that blatant. It's it's now hardball, and you know, and and these local officials are not in a position now, given the fact that they're broke, their budgets are broke, their cities are yeah. reeling. I, I think. The pandemic created the perfect opportunity space for, and this isn't a plot, by the way, this isn't all the 1%. This isn't all of business elites. There are some very decent people. I mentioned David Tepper. David Tepper has moved back to New Jersey. He actually, in the midst of this, said he was going to move back to New Jersey. I don't know if this was his quote or I saw it in the press, but it said, I'm bringing you $120 million back, state of New Jersey. Like, yeah, this is the blow in the hole in the budget guy, yeah, and here he is he back. Said, okay. you know, I don't know if it was the headline in one of the New yeah, Jersey yeah. papers, because I'm, I'm not looking at it. But it, basically, it was either him saying a quote, but it was like $120 million returns to New Jersey. So look, not every business elite behaves this way, but there are many who are. And I think you're absolutely right. When I said capital flight and the threat of capital flight, there are people saying – to political leadership, if you don't fix this, if you don't mm-hmm. get, you know, your political colleagues in line, if they continue to treat us poorly, they don't allow us to build more, build the way we want. And look, I mean, you don't have to look back in American history. What does American history tell you? One of the, the main threads of American history is the frontier. And, you know, I don't want to push this analogy too far, but what was Silicon Valley in the 1950s and 60s? When these high-tech people left New York and New Jersey, that's where they left, Bell Labs, and they moved to the frontier. Silicon Valley was a wide-open frontier, and it was there was no regulation, and there was nobody in your way, and there was no labor law. Why did people leave Detroit and Pittsburgh? They felt that they were overregulated, that they were paying too high labor costs. Yes, and they moved to where did they move? The Sun Belt. And I think this is yet another example You know, I guess we all believe that when it came to real estate development or finance, they had to stay in New York because that's where the talent is. And that's true. But they can move their residents over a border and up. The same thing with Silicon Valley or San Francisco. We thought, oh, they have to stay where the talent is. And that's true. The talent may still go. And and some of it may go to Austin, of course. Austin's a very attractive place for you. Look, I always say, if you wanted to invent the place that was attractive to young techies, you'd invent Austin. A great college town with a bunch of bars on one street, with a great music festival with lots of young people and party, 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 you'd invent Austin. If you wanted to build the perfect place for financial executives, you'd build Miami Beach. But the point mm-hmm. is they don't have to build, move the whole operation. They can just move themselves. That's what's different today. So the talent centers can stay. You know, San Francisco can still be a place startups thrive. New York can still be a place where lots of investment in real estate funds are. But the owners of those funds can move. Richard Florida is a university professor at the University of Toronto's School of Cities and the co-founder and editor-at-large of City Lab. Richard, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure being with you. And thanks for having these conversations. We really need them. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.